Welcome to another talk from Gospel Conversations. We're pursuing uh, the topic of radical humanism and evangelism, or a new way to frame the gospel for the postmodern world. Tonight's talk is a really, really important talk. It may be controversial for many people, but it's unashamedly controversial. Tonight we look at the really um, bedrock reformed doctrine of predestination. Predestination has been controversial throughout the history of Christianity, and nobody put it forward more starkly than Calvin. And Calvin didn't just talk about predestination. He was really rooted in an, a kind of an, an anthropology around the concept of total depravity. Now, um, I don't like what Calvin did with predestination and total depravity. I think it's wrong. But its influence has been enormously pervasive throughout evangelical Christianity. It's actually, it's actually hard to describe it in propositional or logical terms. But I think this is because it, 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 appeal, it appeals to this easy strain of guilt that's in all of us. And this guilt can be can masquerade as the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But more often than not, it's it's not due to any revelation at all. There's a there's a pathology in us all of insecurity and doubt. That is not the work of the Holy Spirit. But I think this doctrine of depravity and predestination comes from that psychological insecurity. I don't don't think it comes from God. And it, it actually works against a deep revelation of God. I think it can be corrosive in the experience of Christians. As regards the, the um, accessibility as re of the gospel to those who don't believe, it's a big stumbling block. The idea that God is conducting some kind of lottery and he's going to choose his in and choose his out is, is really uh, offensive. It's, it's a scary God. It's, it's a God who confirms our worst fears. It's a capricious God. So, so we tonight go in a lot of detail into what Calvin actually said, based on the Institutes, his, his magnum opus. And we pull it apart. And I have to say, um, as, I, as I began this, I became more, uh, the preparation for this talk, I became more and more disappointed in Calvin. So we talk about that, lay it bare. But then we move on to the, so what? What, what does the concept of predestination mean if it doesn't mean this lottery? And the talk really will revolve around Ephesians 1, which is the most, it's the high point of predestination as a system, an operating system in the Bible. And uh, we, we look very, very closely at this passage and give a new meaning, a new interpretation that is uh, um, totally different to and disconnected with the lottery system. It's not what is in mind at all. But in order to, to read Ephesians 1 as it was uh, written and as it's meant to be interpreted, you need to have a different frame of mind. It's just the frame of mind you bring to it changes all of the interpretation. And we talk about that frame of mind and we give it to you tonight. It's a really exciting talk. Um, it's unashamedly controversial. I think it's got to be. But it's, it's taking a pathway, a wonderful pathway, towards a far more profound grasp of the gospel. We've really shortchanged the gospel. 
And it's uh, particularly in communicating the gospel to the postmodern generation, we need to think things through fundamentally much more deeply. So I commend it to you. God bless. Tonight we're, we're continuing the theme of uh, the consequences of the creation gospel and radical humanism and, and how it reframes evangelism. Um, and in particular, in reframing evangelism, uh, there are a few big um, blockers to evangelism in the modern world. And uh, in particular, one of them is the doctrine of predestination and the associated doctrine of the total depravity. Great phrase. Calvin didn't work for an advertising agency. Um, <laughs> and... Um, I've been uh, aware of, for, for some time of how badly Calvin got Ephesians 1 wrong. And I've mentioned to you before that Ephesians is a book that dominates my mind. Uh, one thing I've done, I'd commend it to all of you, is to commit large passages of Scripture to memory. So I've memorised Ephesians 1, which is hard to do because it's, it's just a cascade of fulsome phrases and it's hard to kind of pull them apart. But if you do that, I go to the gym and I'm the cross trainer. I've got my, I'm doing Ephesians 1 and you know, trying to remember it. I might fall off it one day and go to a glorious uh, death. Uh, um, but uh, it, it's, it's been wonderful because uh, that reading of Ephesians 1, of course, where predestination is probably most completely unpacked in the Bible, um, I just suddenly saw, oh, this is what it means. That's what I'm going to talk about tonight. Uh, but it's a pretty, so um, I, I, I've been going back into Calvin and um, actually uh, reading quite a bit of his Institutes of Christian Religion. So here it is, there's two volumes of it, right? It's 1,200 pages. Um, and because uh, as you know, I like, going into primary material. I, I, I personally have found that whenever you're studying anybody, it's go to, don't read books about them. If you want to read, read Aristotle, don't read books about him. They're generally, even Einstein, you know, I can remember reading a book on visual imagery and scientific method. I was trying to talk, talk about Einstein's ideas and he'd drawn a sketch. I could understand Einstein's sketch. I couldn't understand what the person was writing about. Um, and so, so I've gone back to do him justice and I have to say I have been profoundly disappointed and actually scared and I have seen the bloodlines, the bad bloodlines of the modern evangelical gospel there in his bad reading of the Bible. So I think it's really significant. I'm going to talk about that tonight because one of the things I'm going to do tonight is we're going to actually have a, we're going to in the middle take a little bit of a break and I'm going to interview my beloved son-in-law Jonathan who will talk about the psychological alienation the effects this had on him as a young person who grew up in a missionary household. So it's serious if we've stuffed up the gospel that much. So the concept of predestination is a stumbling block to almost anyone who thinks about it. It's not an easy thing to get your head around. It, it just seems it's got all sorts of problems I don't think I need to elaborate. Let's get precise and see how he defined it because he was pretty blunt. We call predestination God's eternal decree by which he compacted with himself what he willed to become of each man or each individual. 
for all are not created in equal condition. Rather, eternal life is foreordained for some, eternal condemnation for others. It's pretty hard to get inspired by that, but that's about as stark as you're going to get. So knowing that's what, what we're looking at, um, I think where uh, the, the creation gospel and the world we live in gives us the tools to do something uh, very important, which is reframing the gospel for the postmodern world. Even if, even if Calvin were right for the 16th century, and he wasn't, but he, even if he was, um, it's definitely easy to understand him in his context, you know, I can, I can be more generous to him putting him in his context. He's, he won't be a hero of mine. I, I haven't had this, this experience before. I've gone into Augustine and gone into Jonathan Edwards and I can see areas where I don't agree with them, but there's this illumination of God that comes through and frankly, I didn't get it out of Calvin. I was just disappointed all the way. And furthermore, it was deeply obvious to me as a literary critic that this guy's coming from a very, very bad misanthropic worldview. Clear. Um, now, but, but if we're here in our day and age, every, every, every generation has got a task, which is to kind of reframe the gospel for its world. Um, that's our task. And we can't just, you know, recycle the past. And our world is a postmodern world. Uh, Tim Keller had a great talk on reframing the gospel for the postmodern world, where he he recalled a, a uh, talk by Martin Lloyd Jones in the 1950s, who declared it's all over. We are entering a new era. It was very prophetic, where we're just going to have to rethink the gospel because the basic assumptions that you know we've been looking at people who are basically a churched people. Nominal Christianity's been our problem. It won't be anymore. The ground will shift to radical atheism, and we have to rethink everything. We can't complain about it. We just got to be smart. Um, and and um, so, what are the features of the postmodern audience? Well, I'm not going to go into it in, in great detail because postmodernity's. By the way, it's a world I work in all the time, and I live in it, and I love it. So, I'm not I'm not frightened of the postmodern world. But um, essentially, um, it's a, it's a, just a, a totally secularized world. And we can say, as a, as a basic premise, that sin is no longer a shared premise. And it is, if you're on that ground, it's pretty dangerous because, and, and this becomes dangerous not just for evangelism, but for ongoing life. Because if you're like me and you work in the world, I can tell you plenty of stories of Christians I've worked with who I've found very disappointing and lacking in courage, occasionally betraying and deceitful and self-serving and hierarchical, and atheists I've worked for whom I have by contrast, vast respect for, whom I've found to be selfless, whom I've found to be um, more transparent and more authentic and more courageous. So if you go in with this idea that, you know, we Christians are the ones who aren't sinful and everyone else is sinful, this gets rocked by life and, and it's rather hard to hold it up. Um, the second big thing, or one, another big thing, is relativism, that, that actually we're in a world where people... People don't know it, but they're actually victim of a relativistic hermeneutics um, and epistemology that essentially says there's no such thing as truth. You've got your views, I've got my views, that's all that matters. And it's almost like a punching bag that's just full of air. It doesn't matter where you hit it, it'll give way. Yeah, it's, I'm glad you believe it. it's lovely for you, good too. And, 
you know, just don't criticise anyone else, you know, that's wonderful, and shouldn't we all love one? It's just like, where do you start with this? Um, so that's where we are. It's a very, very difficult world. Um, a quick story to illustrate, I was at a conference, a big business conference, um, four weeks ago, the AFR Business Summit in Melbourne. And um, I was part of the organising group, and I sat with another guy who was, I won't mention his name, but he was a senior fellow, um, quite well-known in business circles and been quite a, a leader in um, some of the Bob Hawke economic summits. And we, we, we sat, uh, one of the great features, which was wonderful, by the way, was an interview of Frank Lowy, who's 87 by David Gonski, and it was, we had a lunch and had the privilege of hearing wonderful human being, but uh, anyway, Frank Lowy, and, and, uh, and so is David Gonski. But he, I sat next to him, and, and, and I don't know how it came up, but he said, oh, I studied theology when I was young, but then I had uh, a, a reverse Damascus Road experience <laughs> and essentially became an agnostic from being at the Presbyterian Theological College. And uh, so I said, why? What happened? And essentially all that happened was he threw the baby out with the bathwater because he had this very rigid view of the Bible of inerrant word of God and began to be aware of contextual documents and this world and it was like he had this framework of um, that the Bible was uh, you know absolutely inerrant carved in stone and when that got budged a bit he thought so God doesn't exist and I began to talk to him a little bit about say Ian Proven and the you know the modern way of looking at the scripture and contextualization and you could tell he's very very interested but I thought, oh, my Lord, this is 50 wasted years. And so these things matter. You know, he, he had, as it were, like an 18th century gospel he thought he had to defend. And when it doesn't work, then he's, he's, in, a, he's in a crisis. Um, and I think people do different things with that crisis. Like he was public, not aggressive. He was not an aggressive man. But possibly for others, it's private. I just keep the veneer going. And deep down, there are doubts I don't know what to do with. So... Um, the applications of, of any reframe of the gospel definitely would go into apologetics, but I think it's, I love what my wife says, we actually have to convert ourselves every day. I mean, it could be that she and I are sceptics, but um, it's like there's a definite conversion experience, but, you know, in the, in the contest of the mind, there's, there's almost like a dialogue of every day to recover. And Paul says as much in Romans 8, you know, I about I am persuaded and continue to be persuaded that he was persuading himself of the gospel. So it's, a, it's got to be dynamic for us. I think it has to be. And I suppose one thing that I've done in my life of recent years is probably detuned the prominence of the conversion experience, which tends to overshadow everything else, and actually look more at the ongoing conversion experience and paying more respect to the pre-conversion experiences where people were on a journey, you know what I mean? Um, and the, the large parts of the Acts of the Apostles would back that up. I think we talked about Apollos. Clear, there's, there's no black and white for Apollos. There's an ongoing revelation of who Jesus was. Um, um, and I think the issue of sanctification and obedience, which is huge, that what I, what I think I should do with this gospel. So, the, so by reframing it, it's really important. Um, I'm not going to go into this in a lot of detail, but... I, um, I'm heavily influenced by the uh, rhetorical concept, the structure of an argument. Um, arguments are very important because arguments are our tool of persuasion. But arguments are not fixed. Anyone who's done debating will know I have to think on my feet and adjust my argument for the audience. There's not one argument that always works. 
So it's a very powerful way to look at the gospel through the ages where agile believers have reframed and repositioned the argument in a way that's more winsome. I think that's what a great evangelist does and great thinkers do. Um, and so I'm not going to go into it now, but I, I've got a new way of reframing the, the gospel for the postmodern world using the argument structure. But in an argument structure, there's an author, there's an audience, there's the structure of an argument, and I use a model called the ABCD model for that. And very importantly, in the theory of rhetoric, um, it is the audience who makes the decision, not the speaker, which is a total inversion of power. Um, actually, the speaker has no power. All power will come from the decisions the audience make. Think of a jury, where this comes out of the, the invention of our Western system. It's the jury who will make the decision. So what's the speaker got to do? They have to impart their will organically into the mind of the audience, so the audience will make the decision as if it was me. And the tool is the argument. This is a very powerful model for conversion and the agency of God. You know, like God got, and the in, incredibly important point, as you can see there, is Jesus announced in Matthew 13, which is an incredibly important parable, that, that the modus operandi of the gospel would be the word. You could read for that the argument. What's it mean? It means... I am God, but I am going to put myself into a position where I have to persuade you, and you can say no. Does that make sense? So it's like this authorization. It's not going to go by the sword, my kingdom. It's going to go by the word, by argumentation. And, and actually, without going into it, you'll find no more adaptable persuader than the writers of the books. Of, uh, the, the most stunning rhetorical documents I know are the, the beginning of John's Gospel. Paul's sermons and the book of Hebrews. If you have rhetorical theory, you think I'm in the hands of a genius. The single greatest rhetorical opening I've ever, ever heard is the opening of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. I won't go into it now, but he had these two vast audiences. Vast audiences writing at the end of the first century. The whole Greco-Roman influenced Mediterranean world and the Jewish world, and he hits them in one, one of the greatest sentences ever written. That if I was a Jew, I read, he's, re, he's reprising Genesis 1. If I'm a Greek, I read, he's talking about the Logos and that whole infrastructure of Greek philosophy. So... Um, um, in arguments, so, so we'll look at how, as it were... Um, Calvin framed the argument of the gospel and how we might do it better. Now, I'm using the word frame, and I actually think this, this little detour is important as to how what a frame is. We human beings interpret the world by frames, frameworks. So this little diagram is a great diagram for it. We're lookers, but we, you know there can be three people or two people standing side by side. They're looking at the same reality, and they view it differently. You come away and say, were you at the same place I was at? So, and this has, of course, led to the whole problem with subjectivity, but we have a frame. There's a window through which we look at things. Does that make sense? So the big business in life, in a lot of education and a lot of persuasion, is to realise if I could change your framework. It's almost like sometimes I can't have the conversation with you while you've got this framework. I think a lot of... A, Evangelism is like that. We need to get rid of a framework before we can even start talking. So, so I'm looking at frameworks tonight. And frameworks are generally tacit, meaning I don't know I've got them. 
I think Calvin had a very strong framework, but he didn't know he had it. Don't think I'm criticising Calvin as an individual. I think he's a very sincere man. But I have learned in my life, I've learned in my life, there's nothing more dangerous than a good person with a bad worldview. I mean, there are psychopaths. There aren't many, but there are plenty of people who've screwed the entire world or entire organisations through a bad worldview. So worldviews really, really matter. Now, um, I'm going to give you a bit of basic um, psychological theory around frameworks here, which is the incredibly important thing is that how that event is interpret, interpreted, that affects my behaviours. So it's not, this is not just an academic thing. My interpretation affects my decisions and behaviours. And um, what the framework does is it tells me what parts of reality to pay attention to and what parts to miss. This will be really important with Calvin because he's reading Genesis 1 and I'm reading Genesis 1 and I, it's like... What were you reading? And this will be what I'm going to say tonight. Will I, th I hope stun you? What What are you reading? So it's a framework thing. Now, importantly, these psychologists said there's two kinds of frameworks that they've identified. This was in in looking at children, um, a performance framework or a promotion framework. It's sort of like performance is critical. You're here to perform. Don't fail. You're being tested versus promotion, there's something in this view, it's a game and we're going to have fun, you're going to win something. So they would set up tasks, tasks exactly the same, exactly the same task, but I frame it as a performance task for one group of children and as a, a promotion task for another group of children. Now what happens is that the ones who are framed by a performance framework, uh, the task gets, becomes totally reframed as obligation and vigilance and their behaviour becomes extremely cautious and risk-averse, and they don't persist in the task and give up easily. Versus um, it's framed positively, and in terms of gain or learning, they, they, these kids innovate, they persist, they reformulate their strategies, just because they've had a different framework. Same age, same abilities. We're going to look at a framework tonight to say that Calvin had a performance framework is an understatement, right? But that's his framework. So um, let's, let's uh, now have a look at, at, at the framework of his... Essentially, I would say that Calvin had a narrow anthropology, and I'm prepared to say it was so narrow it was a misanthropy. I think he was a misanthrope. Um, I haven't had the time to go deeply, deeply into his psychology and character, but I know where he worked, and I've done a lot of business with the Swiss, right? Um, they're pretty command control. The world is structured. There's no grey. It's all black and white. Make matters worse, he came from France. He was French, and that straight away got... I don't know how much you know about the French education system, the polytechnic system, but it's full of pedantry and rules. So it's not a good combination so far. And he's persecuted, so he flees France to go to Geneva. Um, he's a lawyer, too. Huh? He's a lawyer. And he's a lawyer, so it's not a good combination. Um, well, I've got to say, like, God has a great sense of humour, and I thank my dear friend Drew Harrison for this. This is, this is like God. Like, dear, like, I'm sure Calvin's got greater rewards in heaven than I ever have, but this, like, this story is so good. Calvin was, of course, a joy killer and a joy hater. And um, 
No luxury, no elegance in life, no fun. Now, after the St. Valentine's Day massacre in Paris, there was an exodus of French Huguenots who were very educated, evangelical Christians, to Geneva. And they had three main um, professions, watchmakers, jewellers, and enamelers. And they came to Geneva and uh, Calvin, of course, he couldn't stand luxury, so he forbade the jewellers to pursue their craft and he forbade the enamelers to pursue their craft. What use in the kingdom of God, this is utilitarianism, is, is jewellery. But the watchmakers could build watches because they were, uh, you know, doing something practical. Guess what happened? The Swiss watch industry was born when the enamelists and the jewellers got together to make watches. And if you've been to Zurich as many times as I have, walked up and down the main street of Zurich and looked at those, like it's 30,000 euros is an average price for a watch. And because they're all works of art with jewellery and enamel. And I'm just thinking, uh, God is laughing. Like this poor guy in his attempt to suppress created this most extravagant industry in the world fed by the uh, French Huguenots. So, so um, but his arguments kind of, they, they go back to depravity and flow from depravity. So that's his source. He, that, he uses that word all the time, depravity. His language is extreme, uh, extremely uh, critical, misanthropic. It's kind of like toxic language, to be honest. It's almost unwell to me when he, he writes about sin. Um, and um, so what happens is that it, it, total depravity is my worldview. Redemption is justification by grace. Now, there's two ways you can go with this. And the way I've always gone is the great thing about grace is God loves you. But that's not for Calvin. The great thing about grace is actually my, depravity needs, grace needs total depravity because God needs us to be awfully bad to save us. And every time he's got the opportunity to say, Grace, God loves you, he says, Grace, you're so low that God had to do it. And it proves how great God is and how low you are. It just It's like this, excuse me, I was going to go left, you went right. It happens all the time. And there's this uh, necessity for depravity in his system. Um, now, what it does then is depravity necessitates election because there's nothing good we can do, so we can't save ourselves, so God has to choose us. That's how the argument goes. Um, and so there's this tight causal loop between a doctrine of total depravity and a, a, a grace but, uh, and predestination. But what then happens is it goes into his view of sanctification, which is all about pietism. His favourite word was piety. You know, self-control, self-denial. He's full of it. That's how he talks about the Christian life. Um, and the result is he has an extraordinarily incomplete salvation. You know, he has uh, the most important prayer is the prayer of confession by, by Christians, which, you know, I disagree with completely. It's totally unbiblical. I can't see it anywhere in any epistles where Paul, John or Peter ask any Christian to ask for God's forgiveness for their sins. Amen. It's happened. Um, I don't think he read Hebrews. So it's, it's really interesting that his view of grace is very fragile. It's very mixed up with works and law and insecurity, all tangled up. What's worse is a, a view of God emerges, which is, uh, now I've, 
if any of you are worried I'm way out and a limb and a heretic, I'm going to invite publicly my friend Rick Watts to join me because I rang Rick up on Sunday and said, Rick, I'm going to dump on Calvin. I said, I'm disappointed. He said, oh, only you. <laughs> join the club. <laughs> and so certainly the, the, the bit I, got, I absolutely was right on Ephesians 1, Romans 9 to 11, I, I wasn't so sure of, but Rick really got me through on that one easily. So, so, but this is his phrase. He said, Calvin's God's got to be a winner, as in I win, you lose, to humanity. That was his phrase. And he's actually a very totalitarian God. Very so yeah, Sovereign is, almost, is totalitarian. Um, and um, so that, that's, I think, a frame. Does that make sense, that connection of themes? Um, it's... I had time, it's extremely easy to prove from the text, but um, it's, um, it's chilling to me. Now, uh, the, the reason that I, uh, I'll, I'll, sorry, I'll come to that in a moment. So let's look at, into this in a little bit more detail. Calvin's view of humanity. So let's look at what his view of human being, what's his anthropology? You know in gospel conversations that you know, from a deep reading of Hebrews, I lift up the view of humanity. So this is important. At face value, it's promising. So he hasn't got, I mean, it's pretty, Calvin's Institute is a long book, but it, could have, it should have been about 10% as long. He wrote it first when he was young, and then he kind of added to it when he was older. It's not that complex. He, he just goes on for far too long. So it's not like there are that many ideas in it. Um, but the whole of the first bit is this, this is it, book one is the knowledge of God the creator, which sounds good, and the first sentence sounds good, which is only in knowing God can we know ourselves, so these are the sections, the knowledge of God and ourselves is interconnected, this is looking good, he's going to go, surely he's going to go imago dei, surely he's going to go there, uh, they're interrelated, secondly, what it is to know God and to what purpose the knowledge of him tends, oh this is going to be like Jonathan Edwards, the ends which God made the cosmos. This is going to be good. Uh, the knowledge of God has been naturally implanted in the minds of men. This is going to be promising. Um, chapter 4 begins to give it away. The knowledge is smothered or corrupted. But that's all okay. Yeah, we know about Genesis 3. Um, but everything always turns misanthropic. Just so you know, here it is. An example. Nearly all the wisdom we possess consists of two parts. Knowledge of God and ourselves. Fine so far. Indeed, our very poverty better discloses the infinitude of benefits residing in God. The miserable ruin, that's me, the miserable ruin, compels us to look upward. For as a world of miseries is to be found in mankind, if I think about myself, our shameful nakedness exposes a teeming horde of infamies inside me. A teeming horde of infamies. Each of us must be so stung by our own unhappiness as to attain at least some knowledge of God. Thus, from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more, depravity and corruption, we recognise that the true light rests in the Lord alone. So what he's saying is that we know God because we're so awful and rotten. 
and the contrast with God is what reveals us about God. Can you get the logic? Like from those headings, I would never have gone there. It is the fact that I am mud and black and awful and, he, and his imagery of uh, dirty laundry, he has an image of dirty laundry. We're all here and if you're in a dark room and there's dirty laundry, um, even the stuff that's kind of black looks, it's okay, but when the light shines, you see how it's all black. So this is what he means by, to, as we know ourselves, we know God. This is a million miles from Jonathan Edwards, Irenaeus, Athanasius a million miles from the early church fathers that we talked about last week, a million miles from where we began with last week. So, in a sense, the more you know God, the lower your view of humanity will be. And this then frames predestination entirely within the boundaries of sin and corruption and as redemption, sorry, um, and, you know, personalises predestination to then why did God choose this person, not that person, to be saved? I'll say more about that in a moment. But first of all, just pause there and let that sink in. Does that make sense where I'm going with that? that it's, I was astonished. But look, my experience is I was given the, the institutes, these, these things by my dear friend Tony Morgan, who I mentioned when we were both 20. And I only read one sentence and thought, that's great. I just read the first sentence. I thought, oh, and Calvin's been my hero for 30 years. And then I read him and I thought, this guy's a jerk. Like, he's wrong. Like, how can he get it so wrong? I don't care if he's famous. I couldn't give a damn about him being famous. I only called to believe in Jesus, no one else. I'm called to have a mind of my own. And I just thought, but the thing that stung me was I can see the absolute DNA of it in so much of this kind of guilt-based evangelism that we've got all around us. And... Um, Let's just go a, quick, a bit further, then I'm going to pause and do something different. Depravity frames his view of predestination and sanctification. So what you get is, this is what has happened. Depravity takes him back to Genesis 3. His anthropology begins at Genesis 3. I don't think he read Genesis 1 and 2. Right? His whole Bible begins at Genesis 3. Now, a little thought test for you, which I threw at a friend of mine. Today. How many times in the Old Testament can you recall Genesis 3, you know, serpent eating the apple, being mentioned. Can anyone recall anything? Isaiah? Yeah? Isaiah? Jeremiah? Another question. How many times in the Old Testament, Psalms, Isaiah, could you think the motif of creation, Genesis 1 and 2, is mentioned? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So they ask the same question about the New Testament, by the way, and you get a similar answer. But it's clear that Genesis 3, he just didn't go back behind it. And what this led to was, you know, a view of God's character as very angry, very separate, very superior, um, uh, very, very distant and very alien to me. Um, now, what that does with grace, I think, is it makes his view of grace psychologically very fragile. And I think the problem is the survivor syndrome. Like, why was I saved, not someone else? This is actually not a good feeling. Like you know, at all, but um, I think it leads to that. Um, his psychology of self-denial leads to pietism and this predestination is, well, who wins the lottery in this system? And where it all adds up to is, a, frankly, a view of God that's not very far from the ancient Near Eastern view of God. I think it's natural. Capricious, arbitrary, don't know why he's going to do anything, no logic to his decisions. Time and again... Calvin 
pours scorn on his enemies as having trivially curious minds and too speculative. Um, just believe it. So we believe it. He believes a capricious God. And, and there's a, a great prayer in one of John Walton's books, which is, is from the ancient Near Eastern Egyptian world, about praying to God who I have no idea what he's going to do. I have no idea if I've done anything wrong. But to the God I have no idea about, I'm sorry. To the goddess who I have no idea about, and in case you zap me, I'm sorry. It just goes on. Page, two pages of this. If I've done anything, I'm sorry. Like, I have no idea what this person's going to do, this God's going to do next. He can zap me any moment. It's totally capricious. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's not very far from Calvin's precarious view of God, to be blunt, in my view. Now, um, to go further with it, um, just quickly, I, I, I'm pretty sure his depravity view frames his sociology. Going back to Edwin, Edwin said your cosmology and your sociology and your individual view of the individual are linked. I think he was in a command control world there in Switzerland. I'm not going to go too far into it, but I'm pretty sure that was the case. But, um, but this is much more important. Um, depravity frames his view of the incarnation. It absolutely neuters his view of the incarnation. And what I'm going to show you now is something very important. But before then, I'm going to take a pause. And... I'm going to interview my beloved son-in-law, Jonathan. I'm going to come on out. You've got to come right next to me so I can, you know, talk, talk to them. Yeah, sit here. So um, the reason I'm passionate about this is because it screws up people's lives. And uh, Jonathan has uh, got a really sophisticated, deep... Screwed up life. Screwed up life. <laughs> And faith in Jesus. And, and as, a, as, as a mental health nurse, um, struggled with his own struggles with uh, depression and is very open about it and is very insightful to the valleys the mind can take. And because he's so educated in the Christian gospel, knows the connection between the two. So Jonathan was a missionary kid. He's brought up in a family who's lived in... You know, so you lived your entire life in... in, in that world, and when we were talking about Calvin and this view of the gospel, which you kind of got because you, you've done a liberal, you've done a Bible college degree, mm -hmm. can you explain it? Begin to explain your own words. What happened to you? And the, what happened to me when I? Yeah, you had the kind of breakdown. You talk about uh, this is this view of God is. Uh, what oh yeah, yeah. The, um, so in 1991, um, we had that most dreaded occasion for me um, at my high school in the Philippines. Probably name go you know, unexplained or unexposed. We had this kind of spiritual emphasis week. This is a Christian high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christian so you have a high school. Emphasis week, yeah, yeah. And that's just like, you know, it just sh shut everything down for me because it's all about um, basically, to be blunt, um, know you're evil, um, God is your predator, um, you better make your way, you better find a way, he's going to get you, otherwise you're going to hell. It's very... That's how it was to me. Um, so th literally the Monday afterwards, I, I took my plunge, um, which sort of only ended after I met um, Tony's daughter, Sarah, through time and working through things. But it's, it's just very corrosive. Um, I think of it as now looking back on it, um, it's very small C creation. Everything's about judgment, sin, death. Um, guilt, conscience, 
um, looking for light. It's all individualistic. You spend all your time. I used to go into showers, hot showers and baths, years and years later. Turn it on too hot. You know, I'm in Canada where the hot water really, really works, not to diss this country. Oh, my God. This is like what hell's going to be. God's giving me an insight into my grace. Seriously, literally. We would watch rapture videos growing up of how you were going to get left behind. I, I grew up amongst missionaries whose IQ would rattle most windows in most suburbs. Um, one of the guys I grew up with whom I think has actually abandoned his faith is a very high-level theoretical physicist, so on and so forth. But it's, to me, it's just sad. Yeah. And what view it's of God? Sad. You talked, you were very powerful about the view of God this left you, this kind of sense of an alienation or a abstraction. You took that abstraction. Yeah, I think it's just abstract because you feel like you're not really looking for a God who unites you to your humanity or your body. You're looking to a God whom after you've scraped away for several days, you can find some assurance that, quote-unquote, you're saved. What is that? Yeah. It's like some bizarre... I don't even know how to describe that. Probably it's not common to people here. Um, it's a, sort of an unusual thing. North American evangelicalism is a separate and very strange animal to a lot of even what's practiced here. So as... So as Sydney Anglicans, people say Sydney Anglicans, I'm thinking, yeah, you think that's bad. <laughs> um, but no, look, I, there was a lot, it's just, I think it's just that fundamental, um, what do you call that when you just, you elide something. So the illusion of creation, and you just go straight to sin. You know, like, let's not bother about the goodness of all of this. Let's just say it just all starts at sin. And... I think that, that for me that, that that was related to that guilt that ended that way yeah. in that sense. So. And led you to... And you don't, feel, you don't feel, yeah, you don't feel a sense of being restored to your body, restored to a community. You just feel like you have to search for the confidence, search for the assurance. I, I would say to everyone, they'd say, why are you so sad? I go, I don't know if I have assurance of salvation. You know? And I look back and it's just, it's so pitiful. You know, it's stupid. And they would kind of look at me like that, too. So, like, I took it too far. It wasn't, yeah, I don't know what happened there. But um, I think taking this guy to his logical conclusion, that's sort of where you end. So you're looking for a personal, conscious-based um, confirmation that you have an alien connection to God who loves you, hell knows how, but he does. And then you have to just reconfirm that. So that's another issue. You find and reconfirm. It sounds like some really weird Facebook invention. But I you, yeah, I, I, just to conclude, I mean, I think, Jonathan, you're, you're very intelligent and very sensitive and very thoughtful. And, Sometimes. Uh, some, well, you are. I know that. But, uh, you, he couldn't believe his luck that uh, he was the black sheep of his family. And when he fell in love with my daughter, he found this other family who'd, who who actually the whole family were black sheep and it turned it into a high art and a theology. It was like he could, he could not believe his luck. No. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, it was, it really had a terrible, you know, darkening effect on you for a long time, which, mm. yeah. Thank you. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. So, and I guess not everybody's like Jonathan, but I know even with his own family, some of his 
siblings or friends and others get older, the cracks appear later, and I've had these, you know, no one to talk to about this sort of thing. Um, so is this the God that we need to work with? You know, that is the question. So um, I'm going to now begin to go into the sort of positive thing by, via the final kind of, um, or one of the final, uh, I think one of the low point. This is where Calvin goes right off the rails. If this is it's at, at the very best I could give him, it's a it's a shockingly bad reading of the Bible. Uh, if not, it's heresy. Right? This is his view of the incarnation. Not many people know this. Does anyone know his view of the angels and his fight with uh, Osiander? Well, here it is. His view of the incarnation. So, in this view. Christ's incarnation is a mere expedience. He may as well have become an elephant. He could have still died and saved humanity. Radio. There's nothing intrinsic about him becoming human that reflects the God, the deity. So here's what he said. I admit, when anyone says that, you know, it's like, I agree with you, and you're just waiting for the but, because, you know, so I admit that Adam bore God's image. I'm just waiting for it. But, I add, the son himself was the common head over angels and men. That remind, can anyone think of a verse where it says in the New Testament that Christ was made head over the angels? Have I missed that verse? Colossians 2. Head over all things. Yeah. Hall of creation. Yes. So. All things. Hmm? Right. Let's check. Yeah, okay. we'll check. That's Ephesians, but he's made when he's talked of as the head, he is the head over the church. Colossians two, which is where Colossians, uh, what's Colossians one. Well, we'll look that up, but I don't think it's there. I don't think it's there. Anyway, let's go on. Because when he goes on, he gets it really wrong. Thus the dignity that was conferred on men was also conferred on the angels. When we hear, when we hear the angels called the children of God, Psalm 82 verse 6, it would be inappropriate to deny that they were endowed with some quality resembling their father. The angels have whatever we have because it says in Psalm 82 verse 6, the angels are God's. Is anyone getting a bit worried? Do you know what Psalm 82 verse 6 says? Let's look at it. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. These are the idols. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. That's verse 5. Verse 6. I said, you are gods, you are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mortals. Who is he talking to? Well, if you don't know, let's ask Jesus, who also quoted Psalm 82, verse 6. Calvin might have cared to do that, but he didn't. John 10, the Pharisees are attacking Jesus Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? 
They replied, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. It's really important, this conversation. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, here comes Psalm 82, verse 6, I have said you are God's. If he called them God's to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? It's absolutely clear. If God called human beings God's, he says to them, in Psalm 82, verse 6, how much more will God call the one he has sent a God? Jesus is totally aligning himself via Psalm 82, verse 6, with human beings. But how on earth Calvin reads has that mystery? I mean, if this is an essay and I'm getting it from a 14-year-old, I'm sorry, it's a big cross. It's just a comprehension error of a gross level. But it's a pretty important one because he will go on and say, if he willed, so now he's going to, you know, having quoted Psalm 82 verse 6, if he willed that his glory be represented both in angels and in men and manifested in both natures, so total equality, angels, men, no difference, no imago Dei difference, Ozeander, now he hated this guy. I haven't read Ozeander, but he just buckets Ozeander all the time. Ozeander sounds really good to me. Um, <laughs> Ozeander is ignorantly babbling. He's very, very cutting on his enemies. When he says that angels were set beneath men, excuse me, I think Ozeander's quoting Paul. Though you know not, we will rule angels. Because... Uh, Ozeander said that angels were set beneath men. Excuse me, are you thinking Hebrews 1, like the entire argument of Hebrews 1? Because they did not bear the figure of Christ. So Ozeander said angels were set beneath men because the angels did not bear the figure of Christ and were not made in his image, which is exactly what I talked about last time. So this is an astonishing doctrine. But can you see how this doctrine sort of is diminishing what it is to be a human being. There's nothing intrinsically godlike in being a human being and thus is really opening the door for total depravity. So he's, he's absolutely connected. Uh, you know, he, he has to struggle to get... He, he has to struggle, like he begins, with, look, I, I know it says we're made in the image of God, but... And then, you, you know, it's, it's extraordinary. So um, in that world, um, and you can see why I'm so passionate about this because of the kind of accumulated impact of these frames on someone like Jonathan... Uh, predestination, predestination becomes a lottery. It's just a lottery. Um, and he, this is the quote you know, which we began with. We call predestination in this system, it's God's eternal decree by which he compacted with himself uh, what he willed to become of each man for all are not created in equal condition, etc. This doctrine was extremely controversial in his own day. Don't think it was just today. In 1551, there was a letter from the elders of the church at Bern asking him to stop talking about it for the peace and tranquility of the church. Clearly, this thing was as hot a topic then as it was now. Like, I'm getting it, you know, like, how do I get love of God into this and all this, you know? It's not just us who had problems with it. Um, and, but, you know, since we're so depraved and low, we can only be saved by election. 
Um, so he has this extraordinary statement, the very inequality of God's grace proves it is free. Man, that's a torturous sentence. What mind did that sentence come out of? The, very in, the fact that God says you're going to heaven and you're going to hell proves it's free because it, I, we, none of us had anything to do with it. It's like, it's like being at Auschwitz. You get killed and you go on that line and you go on that line. And, and we're meant to cheer at the end of this sentence? Like we're meant to think this is great stuff? Like this is misanthropic. This is sick. Um, and he then takes the Bible, interprets the, Ephesians 1, just as an example, I don't have time to go through it all. The phrase, according to his good pleasure, that's, that's the heart of, the, of Ephesians 1. God did things according to his good Now that could go as, what's his good pleasure? I love you. I desire you and I'm going to save you according to No, no, my good pleasure is arbitrary. I'll do what the hell I like. You know that other meaning of the phrase, it's my good pleasure. I'll do what the hell I like. It's my decision. Screw you. And that's what he thinks it means. Over against any merit of ours. So not good pleasure out of desire for us. So that's his worldview. And I think it just leads to a, it's a totally wrong reading of Ephesians 1. But, you know, I'm, I, I began wanting to be kind of a bit more restrained about Calvin, but I just kept, I didn't, I just kept going page after page after page after page after page. It's not, not very relieved anywhere. Um, so, with that mild beginning, let's now, my wife said, don't be too strong on Calvin and don't spend too long on him, but um, I think it's kind of necessary. Um, my point is that Calvin as a thinker doesn't go far back in the system. Any good thinker goes back to the arche, first principles. That's what great thinkers do and great arguers do. People like to hear that. But let's go back to fundamentals here. That's how you reframe an argument. Uh, but, uh, and and um, Paul does do that. Now, this is an important equation on the board. This is Rick Watts's equation, so I can blame Rick for this. Uh, which is that we, the evangelical church has made a lot of problems for itself by taking Romans as the high point and entry point for Paul. It is not, it is Ephesians. Ephesians is the high point of his thinking and we should read Romans from Ephesians. Ephesians is the epic declaration of the, of the eternal purposes of God from before the foundation of the earth. Not that Romans isn't a wonderful book, but it isn't the same. It's better to go that way around. So let's look at Ephesians 1, which is the most famous predestination passage. Now, if you read the whole passage, it's very good if you are reading properly to read in context around the passage. So let's just going to go ahead of this section and ask why, why he said it to these people. Context is he's writing to people he's never seen, never met. They're Christians, he's never met them. They're in a pretty Hellenistic world. Their conversion would have been a rupture. He's filled with admiration and love for their bravery. And he prays for them. So after the predestination, 1 to 10, he begins this epic prayer. This is going to be interesting. We need to read the Bible very carefully. I'm very strong on it. Christians are so sloppy in reading the Bible. You've got to be very, very precise. As an example, intent. In the New Testament, it is only ever applied to God the Father. You try and find any appellation, attribution of intent to Christ or the Holy Spirit. You've got to be precise because then you begin to say, whoa, this is interesting. That's not the point I was going to make, but it was, well, it was one of them. So his prayers interest me because surely I'm now peering into the pastoral heart of Paul. 
surely I'm now going to get, he's going to summarise what he says he prayed for them every day. Now think of Jonathan, right? If, we're, if our goal is Calvin, it'll be piety. I think even though Jonathan had a breakdown, he's still actually fulfilling Calvin's system. Calvin was not worried about depression and despair. And I think in, in depression and despair, Jonathan felt like a worm. He felt undepraved. And Calvin's prayers were being answered. He felt there was no good thing in him. Making him an ineffective human being, but that's beside the point. So is that what Paul prays? Does he pray that you'll deny yourself? Does he pray that you'll have self-control? I mean, he does at other points, but this is the high point prayer. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Hasn't mentioned total depravity so far. He's giving thanks for them. Anyway, he might, he might get around to it. <laughs> I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, if he was Calvin, we'd know what would happen. The next sentence would be, and you would know what a worm you are and how great the distance is between you and God. Isn't that what Calvin would have said? Isn't exactly what he would have said? What does Paul say? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, one, the hope to which he has called you, number two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, Hang on, let's read that carefully. It's not our inheritance in God, it's God's inheritance in us. The riches of his inheritance in us. Can you get your head around that? It took me, when I first noticed it about 20 years ago, I thought, hang on, has he made a mistake? Is this a mistranslation? I thought I was inheriting God. God's inheriting me. The riches of inheritance in us and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule, authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. Wow. There is not a negative word in that. He is praying, and my favourite phrase, as you would know, to describe the Christian journey is Jonathan Edwards, that you'll be infinitely enlarged. Infinitely enlarged, because you've stumbled across the most magnificent thing, and I want you to understand it, because you have no idea what you've come into in in naming Christ. This is his prayer. It's it's, it's like a total 180-degree opposite to this kind of worldview Calvin had. Yeah. yeah. So let's look at Ephesians 1 because uh, this is the predestination bit. Um, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Great start. For he chose us. This is interesting. This is where it begins. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. 
to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, that's the crucial sentence. Let's look at it carefully. The first thing you'll notice, which I did as I was memorizing it, is with what words does it begin and with what words does it end? In love, he predestined us. What for? To the adoption of children in Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will, God is infinitely, infinitely pleased by this plan to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. It begins and ends with love. This is interesting. So Paul is incredibly attracted to this, and we're going to find this very attractive. What is Paul saying here? It's actually quite simple. And I'll illustrate it by a story. I want you to imagine you've got a job. And let's just be specific. You're a young uh, graduate nurse and your dream job is to get a job at the famous Mayo Clinic in Rochester, one of the greatest hospitals in the world. You get the job and you're thrilled. As far as you're concerned, this is fantastic um, because, you, you, you know, You've got the job, you've got the salary, you've got the beginning of you know, what you hope for. Your life is now taken up with the kind of day-to-day -day routines of learning all the new stuff and, and you're pretty thrilled that you're in. You have a slight unease because several of your friends also applied for it and they didn't get the job. So Calvin would look at that and say, why did you get the job and your friends didn't get the job? Answer, totally arbitrary. The people just chose you, not you. That's his view of predestination. It's one way of looking at it. Not what Paul's saying. To understand what Paul's saying, you've got to put a big hyphen between pre and destined. It means the destiny and the end was worked out long before you came on the scene. But that's the clue. Let's say instead of that, three months into the job, a doctor or mentor says, come and have a cup of coffee with me. Sit down and you say, I want to tell you why you got this job. I'm going to tell you the story of, I forget his name, but it could have been Dr. Mayo, who 150 years ago began this place. Began this place as a simple doctor in a humble little village. I want to tell you about his love for his patients. And I'll tell you about the great systems he worked out to improve health care and how he changed the face of health care. And you might be here 150 years later, but you're walking in the footsteps of that doctor. This job did not begin with you. This job began 150 years ago in the dreams and passions of that person, and you're just predestined to walk in that adopted heritage. That's what Paul is saying to these people who thought they'd stumbled into God. This, didn't, this began a long time ago, guys. It, it was never conceived by a human mind. And the destiny, the end, the goal, the mission, was forged in the internal, eternal relationships between the Father and the Son. And you're in the Son, in the Logos, in the early created, not created, in the non-created relationship of the Logos, 
is where we find the beginnings of everything. And so the conversion and salvation of the entire world was a destiny worked out beforehand prior to the creation of the planet, prior to the Big Bang. Does that kind of get your mind around that? Once you understand it, it's, it's easy and it's clear what he's saying. Let's read it again. In love, so, so this, is, this is important to me and it's, because now it's, it's easy for me to come to it because as you know, my mind is absorbed in Jonathan Edwards and the creation doctrine, which I'll come back to in a moment to say this. When I, I actually think, I don't have um, Calvin's misanthropic problem with morality and sin. I have another problem, which a lot of people have in our day and age. And this is one of the ways I think we reframe it. It's actually much closer to alienation. It's much a lot of people, and this is the, you know, come out of conversations I've had with people. Their question is, this sounds so important, but I'm just a speck of dust in the universe. Like, it is so vast. And you're telling me that I'm important? When I, you know, it's kind of, the heavens don't declare the glory of God. They, they declare my total insignificance. How can I be significant? How can in 14, in 10 billion years, where you're telling me my little... Sojourn is, it matters. And to that, Paul says a resounding yes, because the destiny of humankind was forged prior to the creation of the world, you know, billions of years ago, in the relationships of the Godhead. And we are invited into the Godhead. So that's a, the way to read it. We are invited into the Godhead. And if we want to understand the mandate, the role, the relationships, the blessings, the grace, go look at Jesus and you will find yourself. The truth about who you are is not in you, it resides in Christ. That's what he's saying. We inclusively, because he's, 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 just, he's talking about humanity and the destiny of humanity. So he's not, the question of who's in and who's out of this choice is not his at all. It's, it's merely saying the entire... Uh, the purpose and the destiny of the human race was preceded the creation of the world. Calvin. Calvin is atomistically individual. It's, it's any, many, mighty, mighty, you, not you. It's, it's, this is so the whole question. that not everybody is saved, but it's a human's choice. I'm not going there at the moment because that's not where Paul went. Okay. Um, I'm happy to talk about that at another time. It's just you used that word inclusive. Well, he here, Paul here, uh, Paul and Jesus are pretty interesting. You know, we, 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 there's a, Sorry. <laughs> yeah. the, there are parts of... Parts of the Bible that would lead you to believe in a universal salvation and parts that don't. And I just, I'll, I'll talk, I'm quite prepared to talk about that another night, but it's such a big topic. But it, the point is, this is not what he's saying here. This is the important point. So, um, the framework of Paul's theology, this is how I draw a diagram of what we've just seen, is that you've got these Ephesian believers, so they're believed, and they look back and they look to the cross, they, they believed in Jesus. And, you know, that. That's a framework they've got, they understood. But he said, no, 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 began way earlier than that. Uh, all of this began, 
So those red exploding lines, is the, that's the Big Bang, right? <laughs> and 10 billion years. I've got to go back before that, Paul says, to where this all began. Um, the entire cosmos exists for humanity as an extension of Jesus Christ. So far from the, what we've just read in Calvin, that there's only an arbitrary connection between the nature of a human being and the nature of Christ and vice versa, intrinsic, we're intrinsic. We are predestined for what? To be adopted as children. So we, we are invited, the swirly bits is the dynamism of the Trinity and their, their perichorosis sort of relationship that we are invited into. I'm invited to the adoption. The adoption of sons means I'm, this is what he's saying in Hebrews 1, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? And the, the Pharisees got it. You're saying you're God. Some Jehovah's Witnesses came to my place. We lived out in the country years ago. I didn't want to be rude to them, but I had to get rid of them. And I used to live, we used to live right at the end of a long road. About Some guys up the end of the road, it, like, it was out in the country and... Yeah, you had about 200 metres walk, and I could see him coming to my house. I thought, oh, this is, I just, I don't want to be rude. It's going to be long. They had some guy waiting in the car. And they said, you know, they're opening a polite thing. Do you, you know, do you uh, go to church or you know how bad the world is or something like that? I said, yes, I do. I said, you know why? And I looked at them like this. I said, because I'm a partaker of the divine nature. <laughs> and they took a step back and said, Excuse me, we'll go. And they went back up and you could see him talking. This guy, the guy, he's mad. I told him I was God. I'm a partaker of the divine nature because I'm quoting the Bible. And um, this vastness of what we've been included, I mean, Paul was clearly you know, just gobsmacked by it because we're sucked up into the, we can't get any closer to God. That's why John says, I just don't think we know, we say our children of God like it's some kind of throwaway phrase. John says in his epistle, Behold what manner of God the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. This is like, we're, we're, we're equalised with God. We're not servants. We've got the DNA. It's, it's breathtaking. So this is, this is his, uh, his view that we are adopted as sons and that, that the entire plan is framed by love and relentless purpose. So that's the framework I think he's taking us through in that single sentence in Ephesians. Uh, one of the most obtuse philosophers I ever read is Richard McKeon, who's horrendously difficult, not because he's verbose, but because he's so compact. And one of my friends said, one wishes that his words were sentences, his sentences were paragraphs, and his paragraphs were books. And that's how I feel about Paul. Like, he just gives us one sentence, but he's back before the Big Bang in that sentence. And if you can't get it, well, I was caught up to the third heaven, you weren't, but just believe me, it's glorious. You know, and, um, and you're involved in something way bigger than you can imagine. That's what he's saying. So that's pretty well it. Um, if you've got time for another five minutes, I can take care of Romans 9, 10, and 11 about the election of the Jews, if that would help. Mm. Okay. Yeah, Tom Wright's very good on it. He's fantastic. Isn't it? It's a great book. What Paul really said, that one, it's fantastic. Yeah, it really, uh, Tom Wright's book on, it is what called What Paul Really Said. It. Also his commentary on Romans, which is in the International Interpretive Bible. Okay, yeah, very, very good. 100% agree. But anyway, this came out, this came from Rick uh, via Skype. Um, Rick's, I, I should give you Rick's analogy of predestination. I've given you mine. Rick's analogy of predestination is... Uh, uh, to airline trips, but no, I won't. It's too, it's too late at night. Um, I'll, I'll do it informally later on if people would like it. So 
Romans 1 to 8, pretty important. Romans begins in chapter 1 with the declaration of God's righteousness. You know, he will behave rightly in all circumstances. And there's an amplification through Romans one way or another to Romans 8, which is like a great climax. Phenomenal chapter. Romans 8, we all know, one of the great uh, chapters that declares the glory of God through all creation into Romans 8. Now, as far as we're concerned, that's easy. You know, and he does take care of it in Romans 2. Look, the Jews, they've got problems too. And the Gentiles, they've got problems. All of sin have fallen short of the glory of God. And so he goes through. But for any Jewy, Jewish person listening or within their worldview, you've declared God's righteous, i.e. God doesn't change his mind. He's got a plan. He sticks to it. And there's a, there's a, there is a logical um, conflict arising in this argument, which is God swapped horses in midstream. Because I thought he was backing the Jews. And um, the vehicle, the vehicle of glory, this is very important. This, this is Rick's point, one point, is election is not to individual salvation, but election to a task. I run a company and I choose, you are going to be the account manager on this project, not you. That's fine, it's not a salvation thing. I'm saying you've got the task, you haven't. So who's got the task of telling this big story to the world? That's what... When it says the covenant, that's what it means. And that's Tom Wright's point. Psalm 19, the first half, the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, it's fantastic, but it's not very grammatically accessible. So the second half of Psalm 19 is a switch to Torah, where the word of God is articulated in the law. So the Israelites had the job of continuing the act of the declaration of the glory of God. But... Now we've changed and God's changed to the Gentiles. So to a reader, that says God's unjust. Unjust meaning he's unreliably changed his plan. You see what I mean? So that, to us, that isn't an, a, an anomaly. But Paul does this all the time, if you read carefully. Like Romans 6 is very important in the beginning. I, I love it when people you know, hear me talk about radical grace and, and say, you're talking about sinless perfectionism. Well, yeah, well, why don't you read Romans 6 verse 1? It's exactly where Paul got to. I, I, am I saying that we should sin so that grace could abound? This grace is so... Is that what I'm saying? So he predicts an, a, an opposing point or a problem with his argument. So this is where he's at at the end of Romans 8. So, and if you think about it, there's a lot implied in this. A lot of very modern points implied in this, which is, can God change his mind? Did God always expect the Jews would screw it up and he'd have to go to the Gentiles? Why, did, why didn't he then go to the Gentiles in the first place? If he knew the Jews were going to, you know, that's like a, that would be modernising the debate in people's mind. And uh, so, essentially, the unwritten question is, has God changed his mind here, his plan? If he is, he is, quote, unjust. We read the word unjust very unlike the first century used it. Unjust means you're unreliable. I thought we were in business together and you've changed the game on me halfway through it. So he's going to say, well, no. Romans 9, 10, 11 is no. Um, in fact, this God is so agile, he will even uh, uh, use our unbelief to his glory. He will use the hardness of our hearts to his glory. And he will use his enemies to his glory. Now, to get into Paul's mind here, all these zigzags, which is, you know, uh, the zigzags he goes through in, he hardened Pharaoh's heart, he did this. He hardened Pharaoh's heart doesn't mean, as Rick was quite, that, he, that Pharaoh as an individual was condemned. He actually showed Pharaoh blessing. Pharaoh wasn't consumed in the flood. But as regards him being a vessel to promote 
to, to be a vehicle to explain God's purposes, the hardness of his heart worked very well. Because what does hardness of his heart do? It allows you know, the, the, God's grace to be shown. So the very fact that God appears not... This is really, really spooky stuff. But one thing you've got to get into your head is that Paul's a right brain thinker. And Tom Wright will say this too. Actually, I love what Tom Wright said in an interview. The problem we've got with a lot of biblical interpretation of the 19th century, it's all by left brain people. They just can't handle uh, paradox and they can't handle emergent fuzzy logic. Paul's very good at it. And do not expect a linear answer to God. Well, if God did this, what about this? If God was in control, how come he let this person do that? This is linear logic, like it's over. It's a logic that's actually minimalist, boring logic. We know the world doesn't work that way. Chaos theory is incredibly hard to wrap your head around. It's all totally counterintuitive and full of paradox. Paradox is everywhere. So where's God in the paradox? Well, Paul says, guess what? He is so clever. He is so that, that he can play the chess game and let you win the move and he wins the game. And he's, he's actually clever enough that he's going to let you not believe in him. His son's going to come to the earth and just look at all... How many debates did you... I mean, I quoted a debate. He didn't win that debate. Those guys weren't persuaded. They met the, the, the son of God and they weren't zapped. They weren't persuaded. This is what Paul is confronting. He's confronting the human ability to say no to God and where's God in this? So that's, does that make some sense of 9, 10 and 11? Um, and so... Um, God, he, God is absolutely, he, he's very strong in 1911. God is utterly counterintuitive. He chooses the weak to confound the strong. I don't know how much you think about this verse, but I think about this is a principle, which God, a principle by which God runs the universe. The weak will confound the strong. How does that work? If you've ever been in a situation where you're really, really weak, like in business or in a negotiation or in a relationship, or there's this conspiracy of kind of fabricated stories about you and you cannot defend yourself. I don't know if any of you have been to places like that. It is not fun being weak. There's nothing romantic about it. And God says, actually, guess what? Your weakness is a tiny microcosm of my son's. And what weaker point can you get than the strongest, cruelest nation on the earth? You're some minor person in a backwater on a minor group of people on a rubbish tip and we crucify you. And at that point, the power of God is revealed. At that point, the greatest power in Ephesians 1, I pray that you will understand the exertion of his mighty power when he raised his son from the dead. At the point of greatest weakness, he exploded the universe and recreated it. So if you want paradox, that's paradox. You want nonlinear thinking, that's nonlinear thinking. So Paul's saying, you want to wrap your mind around this God? Well, he's a, he's a lot more mysterious than you think. And everything works for his... For, he actually began, as you would know this in Romans 8, in a way that, you know, all things work together for good to them who love... All, it's, it's almost like a very good introduction to Romans 9. To, you, you expect that this was going to lead to a bad thing. It didn't get, lead to a good thing. I guess one of the questions is, in one of these downward strokes, was God surprised? I love this question. My daughter Sarah asked it. Um, that's why these two get on so well together. They ask difficult questions. I can remember in a Bible study years and years ago, can God learn? I love that question. What's the right answer to that? No. Well, wow. Anyone I know who can't learn is a moron. And they're boring. So God's a moron and boring. Well, hang on. And learning's fun and 
but to be to learn anything, it's got to be unexpected to me. Otherwise, I can't learn it. So, great, keep going is what Paul would say. Whereas Calvin, shut it off. Stop thinking about that. God doesn't talk about that. But Paul is very interested in this God. And uh, actually, this 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 picture of nine, ten, eleven leads to a view of God. And the view of God it leads to is that God is dynamic and he is a participator in the drama of life. He created it, but he's participating in it. And yet, he works everything, including disobedience, which, by which he may well be surprised, to his massive will. So... Everything is being worked to his massive will to bless the universe and to bathe it in light and glory. That's the best definition I could get of the God that Paul is talking about in Romans 19 11. And as to your disobedience, you know, Rick quoted the verse to me, couldn't remember where it is, but there's in the Old Testament when they really went downhill and they went the way of their uh, Philistine. Uh, 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 neighbours and they went into child sacrifice and the, the verse actually says I never thought you would I never imagined you would do this God said I never act, it never crossed my mind you would go so far man you surprise me yeah, but hang on if he's omnipotent and omniscient well as Rick said it's very important hang on let's be careful of our picture of God what Rick said is unchanging and, and nobody has said this more clearly than uh, uh, Edwin the view of an unchanging, totally self-balancing, totally unmoving God, that's Hellenistic God. That's not the Jewish God. That's a, that is a, very, you know, a lot of the pictures of God that people have are not the, the, the Jewish God or the Christian God at all. That's one of them. The question, well, if God is God, how come he can't control everything? That's, a, that's a coming out of a Hellenistic concept of God. So this God, that's why Rick is so strong about narrative. Narratives are surprising. And, and that's really what he's saying, that God's in all the narratives. So with that, he ends. Here's a verse that I don't know how many of you have read. This is how he finishes the Romans 11 uh, election bit. How's this, how's this go for like the you're in, you're out? For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Not a bad verse to start thinking about, is it? I don't know what it means any more than you might. Does it say he's going to save the entire, all of humanity? I don't know, but it's, look, it's like if you want to read it face value, it says, I, I don't know, but that's, what, that's how they, 9, 10, that is the last verse that concludes Romans 9, 10, and 11. And it's worthwhile reading the entire passage because it's pretty profound. Like, so how does he end? Good way for us to end our talk, I think. And he ends the 9, 10, and 11, like not in tortures of introspection. And this is how he ends it, because he just thinks this God is fantastic. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Doesn't that make sense now? He's, you can't trace it. It's a linear. You can't get him. You'll never get him. Who is known the mind of the Lord? 
Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So I think it's, I can't beat those words. Good night. <laughs> Yeah, it's very great, isn't it? I did have another slide on reframing the creation gospel, but I think uh, I'll put it up. Yeah, there's just some quick thoughts. If we had this worldview, what would you go out to the? You know, what would your point of view be? Look, I I'm sorry. The the the, the how might we reframe the problem space in the creation gospel? So these are just some ideas. I I think we need to make the case the universe is framed by purpose and meaning. And, and, in fact, by love. I love what Bono says, that love structures the universe. So that's, a, that's actually very contestable in today's world. The world does not believe that. So I think we go to town on that. You, with your friends, in small things, you can say, look, I've got to say, I come from a worldview that the entire thing is framed by love. You just try that as a sentence for people. Okay? Um, I think we have a strong worldview that humanity, uh, to be a human being is unique and it's very special and it's above the animals. There's a lot of kind of equalisation with the animals. So, so look, sorry, my worldview is that we, are, we share some things with the animals but we are distinctly different and we're special um, and, and we aren't an animal uh, and we, we differ from animals in kind, not just degree. Yeah, there's a whole debate there to be had and I like telling people, look, this is my worldview. You know, I, can't, I don't have to persuade you this, but this is what I believe. So this is confronting in today's world, this statement. But, but Tony, um, I, was li- I agree with you. But I was listening to David Attenborough the other day in this rare, weird moment of radio. He has a very um, empirical and extremely mystical view of animals. We'd often hear him almost saying things like, inexpressibly beautiful and gloriously courageous, almost, about animals. So it's almost like he just kind of just mushrooms even further. Yeah, yeah, so, I, I mean, agree. This is one of the world's foremost public presenters of the animal world, and he's prepared to use all these, they're not scientific words. No, they're, 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 that's really interesting, and, and it's a, it's a kind of debate that in some ways equalises us with the animals and, and merges the distinction. But that, so that's why I think this is a really good thing to talk to people about. Actually, it's, very, it's, a, it's a matter of debate and it's controversial and it's good. We've got a point of view. I think, um, I think it's really important to acknowledge that, that creation's purpose uh, 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 is challenged by death and corruption. And I won't talk about this now, but when you talk about death, I actually think it's important to talk about the system of death. Right? It means that my mother died on a certain day last year at 89, 88. Uh, she began dying a long time before that, and it was not pretty. Right. Uh, one, what, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a loss of faculties. It's a loss of physical faculties. It's dementia. It, it's a corruption. Right. And we're all in it. Um, huh? It begins the day we're born. This is the irony. And, and, you know, having watched mum die and then watching our beautiful grandchildren born, I think, what is this strange world where what is joyful for you, which is your first birthday in the passage of time, is awful for my mother? 
So the whole system is a system of death is what I mean. And, that, and that's our problem. And I, I think that's actually, that's what we go to town on. This, we human beings face this issue. Um, and uh, I think uh, Jesus recapitulates or defines all reality and meaning and purpose in himself. He's the king of creation and the answer to all of our questions. I think the declaration I'd like to be telling people again and again is that he's king. We believe he's king of creation in the universe. And... Um, uh, I think that, as I say, death and the system of death is our problem, and it's also God's problem as it threatens this mission of the world. And, and I actually think the real... I think we should change the grounds of the problem uh, away from sin to death, which Paul does. Yeah, Paul says that the, way, the wages of sin is death, right? So it's, they're linked in cause and effect. Today you go to people and say you're a sinner. Well, they're going to debate it. I'll say we're going to rot and it's not pretty and I, don't, I think it's wrong and it's our big problem. What are we going to do about this? Because this is the answer. Uh, we believe in a guy who shot through the other side. It's got to, this has got to be interesting. So I've changed the debate now to a problem we cannot deny. And by the way, Rick is very strong about uh, it, that is entirely, almost entirely the framework of John's gospel. John's gospel is, is a death life gospel. It is not a sin gospel. Sin and redemption and forgiveness are hardly mentioned in it. It's the whole framework of John's gospel is life and death. They're the archetypes around which it's built. And that's the problem that I've come to solve because I wrote in there, this changes Jesus from some option to the architect of all life. So there are ways to reframe the gospel, you know, from it's not like this creation gospel is soft. It's not like the creation gospel is not con controversial, but its controversy is hope. Postmodern world is not full of hope. The, the, you know, some, I've, I've talked about the sickness of Calvin's world. You know, I might visit upon you sometime one of my great heroes. Anyone read Kierkegaard's Sickness Unto Death? You have? Yeah, it's miserable. It's, it's actually not. It is the most fantastic book you'll ever read. Um, and it is astonishing. It, it, it's almost impenetrable, so... Uh, um, Summarising it. Well, no, the, 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 the book is simple. It is the psychology of the belief of life in the face of death. The title is taken from John 11 when Jesus is told that Lazarus is dead and he says, this is not a sickness unto death. And what he says is, he's not talking specifically about Lazarus and that occasion. He's talking about human life and, the, and that there is not a sickness unto death. He's not saying I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's saying I'm going to raise all humanity from the dead. This is Kierkegaard's point. So Kierkegaard sees the entire passage of human life as a passage between despair and hope. And the journey that you choose to take or not to choose to take is do I authentically go along the journey of hope? And in this, I, I was going to read it, I couldn't find it. He has the most fabulous passage on doubt and atheism I have ever read. His answer, it's a great parable, but his answer is the main reason people don't believe is this is all too good to be true. This is all too good to be true. So it's a great book, and I'll, as I say, it's so impenetrable, but it's so great, I might one day perhaps do a gospel conversation on it. But it's not like, a, again, he didn't have a great PR agent. Like, poor old Kierkegaard, I mean, he, he's a dark Danish guy living up there in the snow, you know, the sickness under death is not going to race off the airport shelves, is it? Like, but, you know, a lot of people think it's a phenomenal book. Okay. Thanks, guys, for putting... How do we cope with the fact that when we go to churches on Sunday, 
Oh, well, for the tape, Tom's question was how, how do we kind of fit the creation theology into the daily church life, which so often won't. And, and I just have to say I personally have no answer to that. Um, I, I, apart from not going to church, which <laughs> is the solution, unfortunately, for large numbers of people. Um, I just think there's a growing class of people for whom going to church is... The Church Anonymous Group, yeah, and so there's a crisis, and it's a structural crisis, and structural crises have their way of working themselves out organically, you know, it can have revolutions or just a, a huge change of shape of things, yeah, but I certainly don't, yeah, apart from our forums where we can talk about it, no, no, what, no, I don't have a structural answer to that one. Roland Croucher no longer asks baby boomers what church you go to, he says what church have you left? Yeah, that, that's probably a very relevant question. Yeah. 